Amen. Well, it's interesting being uh, back with everybody. I haven't actually spoke to Cornerstone for about six weeks. I've been here and seen me at different points, but we were on vacation, went and traveled and spoke a couple places. But um, let me say this. Uh, I have so <laughs> missed this church. There's something about being away from the people that you love that are your spiritual family that suddenly when God brings you back, it's just, it's so amazing. And even being outside this morning when just worshiping with those that kind of felt comfortable coming back to the parking lot, man, it was, it was so good being with, with church family. And I'm, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're able to, to, we're able to be together even if it is, uh, it is through a camera. So uh, miss you all, uh, I love you all that aren't able to be here, but we're gonna dive into God's word today. Let me just say this, over my time on vacation and, and traveling, speaking, and I would even say this, clear back to when all of this stuff with COVID hit, uh, for whatever reason, God just put the book of Philippians uh, on my heart, and so for the last five, six months, I've just been pounding away, reading the book of Philippians over and over again, and, and there's this one section of Philippians that Paul, or excuse me, that Chris dealt with last week that, that has been deeply, I think very deeply on my heart these last few, few months. And, and I would say this, it's kind of the Apostle Paul's kind of famous declaration of, of his life's principle, his desire in 310 through 11. Let me just read this to kind of get us launched off so that we can, can spend our time in the word today. But this is all he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And of these two verses, I think the thing that has really gripped me the most is when Paul wrote that I may know him. I mean, sure, to die is gain and to live is Christ. There's no doubt that he talked about that. But this heartfelt statement completely summed up Paul's, his just pursuit, everything that he was after in life. He wanted to grow deeper in his relationship with Jesus. He wanted to grow wider in his understanding of who God was. And it wasn't just this factual information, but he wanted to experientially know Jesus Christ. Now, what's crazy about that thought, like I was thinking about it this week, studying, and I even looked up some dates, is at this point, he had already been a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ for about 30 years, and yet he was just laser-focused on this idea in Philippians 3 that, that he knew that this intimate, this experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ, this pursuit of who he is through the power of the Holy Spirit truly would be the means now by which, when you look down in this text, that we experience even Christ's resurrection power. That's just crazy, God connects that power to our intimacy with Jesus, and there's no other way to go about it. Now, this, this no, like I said a second ago, isn't just factual information. It's, it's not just stuff that we know about Christ, but instead it's connected. When you look down in this text, he says it's connected to sufferings and it's connected to death. The idea means that our, our, our knowledge of Christ isn't reading our Bibles alone, but it's also living these truths of Scripture. As we, as we live the truths of the Bible in obedience, then we truly begin to know the Christ of the Word. Paul was a man that he knew the Scriptures. I mean, my goodness, he wrote most of the New Testament. But when it comes to what he knew, it, it just resonates with James from the standpoint that we are to be men and women who are doers of the word, not just hearers. 
So, so here's what I want to do today, because I'm trying to think through how, how we're going to kind of approach this. And, 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 I, and I think it's so important that when we look, talk about this idea of I want to know him, it's not just a slogan that we put up on our social media boards. See, when you look down at this text, Paul's passionate longing is, is meant to serve and as an example for Christians throughout the ages. In fact, when you get to verse 17, he says, I want you to actually follow my example in this. this. This huge part of imitation all throughout the book of Philippians, he says, I want you to imitate me in this. He fervently, fervently wanted them to know that they could live as Christ. And this is what he wanted. He wanted us to make his passion for Christ our passion for Christ. And that sounds good, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have to ask the question like, okay, so how do we do that? Now, the good news is in verses 10 through 11, he then moves on into verse 12. And, and we're going we're gonna to look at these verses both today and then we're going to also look at them at, at next Sunday. But Paul's going to explain, this is how you make his passion for Christ your passion for Christ. Again, it wasn't a, a nice slogan. It wasn't an idealistic kind of wish for Paul. It was real. It needed to be realized in real life. And so the question we need to ask then is, okay, Paul, if that's true, how did you do it? Now, the first thing he does in verse 12 is I think he gives us one of the, one of the beginning answers for how we can know or, or how we can come about having the same passion for Jesus that he did. And I think this is the way I would sum it up. His first thing that he gets to right after saying that is, is that now we must acknowledge that we aren't there yet. And we're going we're to unpack that a little bit, but let me just get this in there. The first thing we have to know is we aren't there yet. You see, after writing the powerful words of, of verses 10 through 11, Paul immediately inserted the thought, kind of almost a, an explanation in verse 12 to give us an idea. Okay, so how are we going to do that? Now, now, notice what he says. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or he says in there, am already perfect. Now, I believe that if you and I were honest with ourselves and somebody came up and says, okay, how do I make my passion for Christ like your passion for Christ? I honestly doubt we would have read or we would have, we would have recited back this kind of thought to them. In fact, his language here is kind of, it, it hits you like a punch. If, if you were to put it out in the Greek, it just literally means not that I have already received. In fact, in the back of your head, if, you were, if I were to look at you and say, not that I've already received, you're going to say, received what? Well, it was probably more than along the lines of a saying. It, it, maybe the words in the English might be better. And this is the way I think he would, he would say it in English, is that not that I've arrived, step, stressing the fact that, look, I'm still growing. I'm not there yet. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to know Christ in a greater and a greater way. So Paul had not received, again, that's what's in the text, but look down at verse 12. Not only had he not received, but he says in there, he says, nor, nor perfect. I love how this, this reality that for Paul was just like emblazoned on who he was. Paul was not bamboozled by his accomplishments. He, he absolutely would not pretend that somehow he was perfect. This means that the way we can answer the questions of, of how Paul's passion for Christ can become our passion for Christ, and I think we can summarize it in one word, and that's humility. He was humble. 
Which, by the way, I think that beckons back all the way to Philippians 2. He's building out this idea that this first step into having a passion for Christ like he had a passion for Christ starts with this idea of humility. Now, why, though, did he interject this idea of humility? Was it just kind of a thought, or what was he thinking? Now, no doubt, I I, I firmly believe Paul was a humble man, but as we're going to learn next week, he was probably taking and he was co-opting kind of a, the lingo of people that used to stand against him. Maybe you, you would maybe call it like his antagonist. You see, some of these people, what they had done is they had snuck into the churches of these, uh, that he had planted all over the Roman Empire. And they were beginning to teach people that they had somehow reached a state of perfection. They had arrived. And not only were they trying to say they had arrived, but they were trying to say this Apostle Paul guy, he hasn't arrived. See, unlike the Apostle Paul, who, who was regularly sick, in the back of their heads, they were saying to people, we don't get sick anymore. Well, because we've arrived. Unlike Paul, they weren't simpletons working with their hands, making tents. Instead, they became people who took money from others because why? They'd arrived. Unlike Paul, in the back of their heads, they didn't sin anymore because they had arrived. But for Paul, there was no one that had a greater burning passion for Jesus But Paul, over and over, is going to say to us, I'm not there yet. I haven't realized it. It was this mark of humility. In fact, I would put it this way. In my life, in other people's lives, and I think you'd even build this out of the Bible, the more and the more and the more that we come to know Jesus Christ, we realize we're a long ways from the incredibleness of who he is. I think this is Paul's statement. I think it's not just that he's trying to be like piously humble or maybe he doesn't understand how far along he really is. I think it's just the more and more he truly began to know Jesus Christ, he saw him as other and wonderful and so far beyond even the person that has arrived at the, most, the nearest to that perfect state in this life. None of us are Jesus Christ. And I even think he's laying this out there because the moment that we embrace this idea that we have arrived, we place ourselves in the dangerous position of apathy. We can almost think we're there, yet what ends up happening to us is is that the moment we think we're almost there, that we've arrived just enough, I think what happens to us is we become absolutely stagnant. But here's Paul, man, in this text. It's this regular, humble guy just coming before everybody and saying, in essence, oh, there is so much more to know of Christ. He knows that he will never grasp like the the depth and the width and the height of Christ. He knew it was an endeavor that was going to be something that he would go throughout his entire lifetime. He even knew that when he arrived finally in the perfect state before God, he still wouldn't be able to fully grasp the depths of God. And he wanted people to know this never-ending pursuit will never, ever, ever be one that you can get to the end of. It is fully satisfying, but will never reach the end. And the humility that he's talking about here, this attitude of passionately desiring to know Christ, what Paul's saying is, is this is the starting point. This is where we start, is with humility. Now, Paul, what he's going to do in verse 12 is he's going to add more thought to this which we're going to get to in a minute. But it was almost as if he sensed that somehow he needed one more qualification of this non-arrival that, it was, that was needed to kind of help people get it. So look down in verse 13 because he repeated himself in a, a kind of a, a more intimate way with the people. Notice he calls them brothers. No? Okay, so he's making it intimate, but look what he says. 
I do not consider myself to have made it my own. Or more literally, if you, if you work through this, kind of from the Greek standpoint, I myself do not consider I've seized it. I don't get it yet. See, Paul wasn't this like guru that, you know, had arrived at nirvana. This confession, like I said before, wasn't somehow false piety. He didn't understand maybe how far he got. Maybe that's what it was. But no, are you kidding me? It was grounded in the fact that he had not attained the perfection that God had in store for him. And I would even say this for all of us that love Jesus Christ. He knew he couldn't experience this until he was fitted with his, with his resurrection body. And so that's where he stood. And before, before we leave this idea of verses 12 and 13, I, I just want to kind of dive in here a little bit further because I think there's this danger that's kind of leaking below the surface of the waters of this text that we need to know. And here it is. You and I may be the very person that Paul is referencing. <laughs> Immediately you might go, wait a second. I've never said somehow that I've arrived. I'm not there. Like, what are you talking about? But at the same time, you might be somebody sitting out there going, you know what, right now I am spiritually dulled. Well, oftentimes what happens is the spiritual doling is, is due to thinking that somehow we've arrived, maybe not fully, but you know, I've arrived enough. We're no longer regularly in God's word because we've arrived enough. We're no longer regularly now praying on an ongoing basis except when life somehow gets a little bit difficult. We've lost that rhythm of it. Why? Well, because we've arrived enough. We've lost joy in our lives because somehow in the midst of all of it, the cares of this world have begun to trap us and we've lost our grand vision of this Jesus that the more we know of him, we see that there's even more to know. Why? Well, because we think we've somehow just arrived enough. We choose where and when we want to obey King Jesus because we've arrived enough. We begin to live as if government or getting back to normal can fix our situation because we've arrived enough. But to know Christ like Paul is calling demands we flee from any thought, any mentality along these lines. So that's the first thing. If you're maybe just kind of making mental notes, if you're writing things down, if we're going to ever gain a passion for Christ like Paul had a passion for Christ, if we're going to imitate him like he's going to tell us next week in verse 17, it starts with a humility that acknowledges we're not there yet. Let me just add this to it. Not even just enough. There's more vistas. There's more newness to explore to Jesus, but we got to live life with him. So that's, that's the first idea. But here's the second idea of making Paul's passion for Christ our passion. And it follows his confession. When you're looking in there, when he follows this idea of, of, of not already you know, being made perfect, look at verse 12 again. But I press on to make, my, make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Now what this means is that though... Now, we haven't arrived yet. Okay, so that's key to this. We have to keep it in the back of our heads. We haven't arrived. That's the first thing. But now he's going to get into this idea, though, that we are to go after Jesus Christ with a single-minded ferocity. Now, let me see if I can show you what I mean. Down in verse 12 in the English, I, one of the things that after I studied it more, I realized it's kind of too nice and neat. But in the original Greek, and what I tried to do is I tried to translate it out. It is so much more aggressive. It's so much more assertive. In fact, he uses language that, that are on the edge of this is what I termed the word ferocity. 
So to get the thought more clearly, this is what I've done. Let me just kind of translate it out like I, like I think it's supposed to come out of this particular text. Watch what he, he says here. But I pursue him, if indeed I might seize him, because indeed I have been seized by Christ Jesus. You see Paul's language here, right? It doesn't come from a stroll in the, or, or a walk in the park. It's not lounging around home. But instead, he chose to use the language that, that of the time that came from the battlefield, that came from the sports arena. Now, in that last part of the verse, he talks about this idea of being seized by Christ. And there's no doubt in my mind that what he's referencing there is when Jesus Christ seized him on the road to Damascus. If you read that text, Jesus didn't just kind of nudge him a little bit. He seized him. He was snatched by Christ with ferocity and Paul's desire now to know Christ because he was in the grip of Christ's grace. He wanted to have the same ferocity in how he went after Christ. Paul would pursue Christ like he was pursued by Christ. Now, let me take this a little further. For Paul, this pursuit of Christ was not like kind of maybe this uh, one-time or occasional pursuit of Christ. Instead, the way that it's kind of marked out in there, it was daily. It was, it was persistent. And maybe a word that I really has come to my mind in thinking through this, he was resolute. He was going to seize that which he believed had the greatest value. This is so important to our vision of Jesus. He was going to seize that thing which he felt like had the greatest value, and that which had the greatest value is always Jesus Christ. In fact, I was trying to think about how to put it. It's like Paul was saying, I won't be denied. So if we're going to pursue Christ like Paul is, no doubt, we have, to be, we have to be humble. But I think we also have to enter into this determined ferocity to know Christ. Man, if we too have been seized by Jesus Christ and are in the similar grip of grace as Jesus, we're called to now to totally go after and seize him. We can't afford to become apathetic. We're called, every single one of us who have been seized by Christ to this ferocity, that's who we are. Now, now saying that, though, let me, let me pull it back a little bit. Because on one end, whenever we think of ferocity, we kind of think of it as Paul saying that I'm supposed to be wild and flailing all over the, all over the place. Well, in verse 13, what he's going to do is, though, he's going to show that it is to be ferocious, but it's to be ferociously single-minded. I love this. Look at what Paul writes in verse 13. But one thing I do. Paul isn't simply fanatical. Instead, he's a man that all of that ferocity is just absolutely pointed in one direction. One thing. With everything that was going on around him, he isn't thrashing out of control. Everything he does is moving one way, which, by the way, I think we so desperately need to hear this right now. In all the midst of COVID and social unrest and the political stuff that's going rampant, I want us to be a church that's ferocious at this time. I do. I want the Spirit of God, and I've been praying the Spirit of God will make us ferocious during this time. But we need to be single-minded in our ferocity, when you look down at verse 13, and you can just kind of look there for a little bit, everything that Paul did was focused, look at this, in a direction of the finish. 
So the statement, one thing I do, what it's gonna do is it's just introducing now this thought that's putting out there, this one thing I do is going towards the finish line and everything about that kind of conjures the idea of a foot race. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna grab a foot race from history because I think when the Bible, we read the Bible, sometimes we're supposed to use imagination and sometimes we've made the Bible in some ways just too sterile and cold. Paul is using an analogy from a race. So let me tell you about what I think is one of the greatest races of all time. And by the way, I think it intimately connects this text. On August 7th, 1954, during what's called the British Empire, more commonly now it's called the Commonwealth Games, but it was in Vancouver, Canada, and it was one of the greatest mile foot races that ever took place. In that year, the whole whole world was absolutely enraptured with the mile, which is four laps around a, a, a track, because a man from Great Britain named Roger Bannister did what no one thought could happen. He ran one mile, under four minutes. That's 15 miles an hour. And as a person who used to run the mile in both high school and college, let me just tell you something. That is fast. Now, that's what made this race so special, though, is that not only did he break the world record, but another man, an Australian named John Landy, he broke Bannister's record just a month and a half later by a second and a half. The whole British Empire, and I would say this, most of the world was now wondering, what's going to happen when these two guys finally get together to race? Well, what happened? 35,000 people showed up at the stadium screaming, and 100 million people watched it on TV. It was such a big deal that it was labeled the Miracle Mile. Now, the Australian, Landy, he had greater endurance than Bannister, but man, that Brit, he had an incredible kick. Because of this, what Bannister decided to do is he was going to go out and run right behind Landy. He was going to sit behind him, and Landy was going to try to run away from Bannister because he, he had such great endurance. As the, lap, as the race proceeded, Landy began to stretch the lead over and over again. In fact, inside of Bannister's head, he thought, I'm going to rest the third lap. I'm going to take it a little easy, and then I'm going to outkick him in the fourth lap. But no, what happened? Landy decides, I'm going to kick it up some more, and he started to take off. And in that moment, Roger Bannister decided, I better go get him. And by the end of the third lap, and and Landy wasn't fully sure of this, Roger Bannister was right on his tail when the bell began to ring, and off they went. They circled the first corner. Both of them were screaming down the back stretch. And as they came down around the final corner, something happened that that will go into literally infamy forever on this particular race. As they rounded that corner, the crowd began to erupt. And as they erupted, not only were they screaming and yelling, they were clapping with thunderous applause. And Landy wasn't sure where Bannister was behind him. Well, in one moment that every track coach tells you not to do, he decided, I'm going to look behind me. He looked over his left shoulder and didn't realize that Roger Bannister, the great kicker, had already stepped it up into a whole nother gear. And as he looked around, Bannister passed him on the right. And when he turned back, Bannister was already two or three strides ahead of him. He got caught off guard. Now, what's so interesting about this was, is that it was not only caught on video, but a man named Charlie Warner caught that fateful moment in a picture of Landy looking over his left shoulder and Bannister passing him on the right. 
And that photo was even turned into a statue, which to this day is still standing. A reporter later asked Landy, uh, kind of in, later in his life, what he thought about the sculpture. And let me just read this to you, because this is what Landy wisecracked, and it's going to build into what I think Paul's going to talk about here. Landy said, well, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for looking back. I am probably the only one ever turned into bronze for looking back. <laughs> John Landy's laps is why running coaches tell their runners to never look behind them. Paul knew sports, he knew track, and if he would have seen it in a flash, he would have known that Landy had made a mistake. Now look down at verse 13. That's why I'm telling you the story. I want you to capture the vision. That's why he says in there, forget what lies behind. Why, Paul? Because even a quick glance can be tragic. Now, some people might think, well, then why was, what was Paul suggesting here? Is that somehow I'm supposed to just somehow supernaturally erase the past and pretend like it never happened? No, I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. Paul understood that's an absolute impossibility. It's not so much that he's saying here now that we're supposed to now erase it from our memory. In other words, those things are still there. It's that we're not in any kind of a way supposed to go back in there and either savor it if it was a wonderful thing or even on the other side, wallow in it if it was a bad thing. He's like, look, leave those things behind. The moment that you begin to do that, his point was, you will become somebody that will become lethargic in your walk with Jesus. Could Paul have done it? My goodness, he was the man. He was beaten, abused for his faith. Like I said earlier, he wrote most of the New Testament. I mean, I was thinking about the other day. If they were giving out letterman's jackets to Christians for at that particular time, Paul would have had all the patches. He would have all the pins. But Paul understood something so big here. We can't look back. For Paul, and this is what I just see him in, in Hebrews 12, 1, right? He, he was a man that laid aside every weight and the sin which clung so closely. And he, he ran with endurance the race that was set before him. He ran his race without resting on his achievements or wallowing in his failures. Paul ran with single-minded ferocity and he got after the one thing. One day I was having a discussion with a guy named Steve Jones who won the U.S. Open Golfing Championship in, in 1996. And I remember I said to him, what do you think makes the difference between a golfer who is good and one who wins on the PGA? From what I remember, he didn't even hesitate. And I, remember, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but the gist of it was the best ones have a phenomenal ability to forget their last shot, no matter if it was a great shot or a terrible shot. He said if it was a great shot, it could cloud your judgment on how you're going to shoot your next one. If it was a terrible shot, it will mess with your head on the next. He understood what Paul was saying here. We have to leave behind what's behind. And this is why when we look at Paul, he was always running ferociously straight ahead. So that was his point at the end of 13, right? That's what he's getting after. To pursue Christ like Christ pursued him, his ideas, we must strain forward to what lies ahead. 
And let me just say this. I hope even after I'm done preaching here, I hope you look up the miracle mile between Landy and Bannister to fuel your imagination on what Paul was saying with this text because you're gonna see this if you watch it as Bannister is finishing his final 100 meters just like Paul was talking about in this idea now of looking forward to what lies ahead. Everything about him, his head, his gaze, his determination, his legs were driving towards the finish line. His arms were pumping like pistons in one direction. This is what Paul is saying. We can't afford to go to the right. We can't afford to go to the left. We can't be bouncing all over the place straight ahead. With all the things that are going on in our world right now, political and socially and all these things, and they're gonna trap us. They're gonna get us involved in the stuff that's not the ahead stuff. Man, Cornerstone, we have to make sure that we run this race straight ahead. We gotta keep moving. And I think, again, this is what Paul was trying to stir us to visualize. He's trying to get us to get after it. Now, I say all these things to put it out. I think this is why, just, and you can look for this towards the end of the week, I'm gonna be putting a video out from, from the elders on kind of how it, how it is that we're gonna approach the coming next few months and really get after this, this one thing, this straight ahead, this humility, this, this focusing with ferocity upon this, these things single-minded. You're gonna hear about it. Let me just say this. I'm excited about it. Uh, I think it's so caught up in the stuff that's forward to what lies ahead. I think it's gonna get us caught up in the running the right race and fighting the right fight in what God's called us to do to get after, again, like we've been talking about, knowing Christ. Now, to be honest, we've all been getting our footing. I've been trying to get my footing. They didn't ever offer a class on how to do pandemics and social unrest in the seminary I went with. There's pastors and churches doing all kinds of things. There's, there's some doing this and some doing that. But as we met as elders and kind of just talked through it, our heart is that one thing that you might know him, that you might approach it with single-minded ferocity. But let me just say this. The more that I've been in this and how I view how others are walking through this, I've been pretty humble about it because it's not easy to figure out what God wants us to do. Are we tired? <laughs> Yes. Do we want to go back to normal? Sure. For Paul, however, this pursuit is not an option if we want to seize Christ who has already seized us. Normal for Paul, who's, who's, who he's talking about here, when by the time we get to, to, to chapter four, normal for him is way different. It wasn't going back to the way things were that were normal. It wasn't attached to whether we have a lot or little. Normal for Paul was pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Everything else around him might challenge him. Everything else around him might change. But this was his one thing. He wanted to know Christ. So what's the prize? Well, Paul's going to talk more about it in verses 19 through 21. But for right now, the greatest prize, I think, is back in 310 through 11, that I may know him. Knowing Christ when it's easy, knowing Christ when it's hard, that's the prize he's talking about. That's what he wants the Philippians to seize. That's what he wants to follow him. This was Paul's pursuit. And let me just say this, if you desire it, if you too will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, just humble yourself, point your life towards the goal with single-minded ferocity, it's available to you too. 
In the coming weeks and months, my prayer is that Cornerstone will, in a greater way than we already have, make this pursuit of Paul's ours, to go hard after Christ, to know him in humility, but also with that single-minded ferocity. And by the way, when you look at it, Paul's later going to tell us that's true maturity. So let me finish this way before I turn it back over to Billy. Church, I love you. I do. Before the foundation of the world, the Father set in motion a plan to seize us. And though humanity rejected God and chose to seize other created things instead of the creator, I'm so thankful Jesus Christ came to this earth and seized us because we would have never seized him. And he left his Holy Spirit so that we might seize Christ with everything that we are in humility but with single-minded ferocity. So in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, may this week we know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, we, we may attain the resurrection from the dead. May you pursue Christ with humble, single-minded ferocity. <laughs>